What was mind-blowing or what was the point where it felt like, oh my God, this is it, was actually when four to five customers said yes to that size of contract, where they were willing to pay $139, $149 per seat for a layer on top of Zendesk that was just an automation palette. And at that point, one made us realize, okay, like people have a lot more budget than we thought. But two, it made us realize, okay, like this willingness to pay at certain price points where the math works for us, but also the need is clear because they're willing to invest so much is a sign that we should go out and build this. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Today, I'm joined by Keshav Karupa Dinakaran, the co-founder and CEO of Lumini, a company that automates workflows by taking any multi-click process and making it one-click. Lumini was founded in 2019 and is now a Series A company that's raised over $20 million to date, backed by some big names like General Catalyst, Moxie Ventures, Underscore VC, and Craft Ventures. Lumini's customer base includes many great companies like Strava, Whatnot, and Aura Ring. And Keshav is a remarkable founder a TL fellow and Forbes 30 under 30 recipient who broke the Guinness Book of World Records for number of Rubik's Cubes solved in one hour with 290, which was 80 more than the previous record. I'm really excited to dig into his background and Lumini's founding story. Keshav, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Todd. Excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal background and some of the different pieces that pushed you towards the founder path? Absolutely. So I grew up in the southern part of India. And so most of my generations of family grew up on a coconut farm for a long time. The sort of exposure or the kinds of things that people within my family or within my community did was very different to the world I'm living in today. And so when my parents actually moved up to Chennai, which is sort of the capital of the state I'm from back in India, I stumbled upon Rubik's Cubes. And that was my first interaction with something that was maybe very unfamiliar to the community I'm from. And it'll make sense when we go dig deeper. But I'd walked into my first ever sort of Rubik's Cube competition because I had learned how to solve it from a friend of mine. And this is a competition that was in one of the IITs in India. And it's a it's one of the sort of national technological universities. And when I walked in, I walked into this room filled with CEOs and musicians and artists and engineers and doctors. And was like, whoa, I guess I can do like other things. How old were you at the time? 11 years old. I was like seventh grade. That was the first time I was like, okay, so all these things that I learned, I was like, that's like maybe 0.0001% of what the world had to offer. And when I saw these people, I was like, oh my God, these are people who are pursuing things that I've only seen in like movies. And, you know, eventually kind of got very into solving Rubik's Cubes as I got closer and closer to the community. That was my sort of journey into at least learning something about tech and entrepreneurship. And then what was it that initially brought you to the US? When was that? The Indian government and a bunch of other sort of communities had funded me or sponsored some of my trips abroad. So I'd gotten to go to the World Rubik's Cube Championships and 
And I, I got the chance to captain the Indian national team. And so I got to travel across some of these countries and ended up going to this sort of high school called United World College. And it's this high school that brings together people from 70 different countries to work on international peace and understanding. And I got into this full scholarship to go there. And it was not because I was good at school, it was because of this Ruby Soup stuff. And what was interesting about UWC was the whole mission of the school was to promote peace. So I decided to, right after I graduated from high school, I'd taken a gap year because I didn't end up getting into any of these American colleges that I applied to. So I wanted to kind of live this United World College mission of peace. And so ended up cycling from Europe to Asia to promote this mission. And there was this foundation in New York City that sort of caught wind of it and then said, we'd love to fly you out for this like 10-day social entrepreneurship program. And that was kind of the first time I ever came to the US back in March of 2019. Wow. Okay. And so when you came to the US in 2019, like my understanding is that initially you were living in a hacker house yeah, and living off of hacker money, hackathon winnings. Yeah. So when I first came to the US, right, I come for this program and I knew I was interested in tech. I planned my sort of return flight from San Francisco. And so I come out to Silicon Valley. And when I came here, I was like, oh my God, these are like my people. And I started to feel like it, it truly felt like home in so many ways because people would be thinking and dreaming about the most wildest and crazy and impossible things. And that energy really struck with me because that was kind of the energy that I was searching for. So I decided to stay and not go back. I had a tourist visa when I first came out. And so I had to figure out a way to, obviously, I couldn't work here. Hackathons were a very effective way to continue to legally be here, but like still win prize money to survive. These hackathons were like two day events for $10,000 in prize money. So you could like win a weekend and like live a, a month or two on one hackathon winning essentially. And so that was kind of the first snapshot into some of the Silicon Valley stuff. So tell me about some of those hackathons. Where were they? What were the rules? What were you building? The co-founder started a company, the company with, we'd initially picked very strategically the ones that we wanted to go to. There were multiple of these, the multiple types of these hackathons, right? They're all the way from your like sort of university hackathons to these large corporate hackathons. Our end goal was to survive here in the US. And so it was like, let's just go to the hackathons that has the most prize money. And the ones that had the most prize money wore these sort of corporate hackathons. These were hackathons organized by companies like Twitter and Twilio and Shell. And they all had their sort of own versions of a hackathon that they ran one year that, you know, they tried to promote and run around a specific theme. And so we focused very specifically on these type of corporate hackathons and we're building products that were very relevant to the companies that ended up organizing them. I mean, if you were relying on hackathon prize money to support yourself, you probably got pretty good at winning these hackathons or you were able to do it reliably somehow. How did you do that? Yeah, I think we basically won almost every hackathon that we did. So the only one we actually did not win was like TechCrunch. I feel like the reason why we didn't win TechCrunch was because all the rules that applied to these corporate hackathons did not apply to TechCrunch because in TechCrunch, they didn't care about some of these other strategies we used in some of these corporate hackathons where we built products for the companies themselves. But in TechCrunch, thousands of people are participating on building the best product for that weekend, except for, for one of them. But it sounds like you had a formula for that, for these corporate hackathons. Yeah, what's really interesting is there's almost like an analogy that I can drive between how we ran in these hackathons and how we won them to how we built Adlumini for the first year or two years. The thing about these hackathons, they are sort of generally advertised as this is an excellent place to learn and you should just come build whatever you like. 
But corporations for that size aren't just doing hackathons for the sake of charity. And what was really interesting is what we discovered was as we started to talk to some of these like hackathon organizers, there were two reasons why they were organizing the hackathon. It was like one was either they wanted to recruit you into their companies, or two is they'd want you to test something that they'd launched recently or an API that they'd put out or some version of that. And so what we do is just before the hackathon, the day of the hackathon, let's say the hackathon started on a Saturday morning, we call up the organizers on Friday afternoon and sweet talk our way to figuring out why they were organizing the hackathon. It was fairly easy to understand if like they were organizing it for the sake of recruiting or for us to test their APIs. And so then when the actual hackathon started, in the first three hours, we'd ideate and try to think of something that was very specifically for that goal. Whether if it was recruiting related, then we'd basically study all of their like engineering job descriptions, all the different types of the stack that they were using, what they were looking for, or if it was something related to the API or some something they've launched, then we'd build a product around that being the core of what we were trying to do for the weekend. And in the first three hours, once we did that, this was kind of the key piece of the puzzle, which was we'd go and take this idea back to the organizer or the organizers and we'd get their feedback. And then we'd come back and we'd build a little and then go back to them. And we did this over and over again in that sort of 48 hour time period while everybody else was just coding away. And what ends up happening in most of these hackathons basically is these organizers who are just kind of serving you food and just like hanging out there end up being the judges of the hackathon. So when you'd go and actually pitch, you would have built exactly what they wanted to see and basically almost had 100% hit rate, which makes sense why it didn't work in TechCrunch because in TechCrunch, the organizers aren't actually the judges and they don't really care what it is that you're kind of building. That is brilliant. So you basically reverse engineered how to understand what the judges were looking for and then built that iteratively over a three-day hackathon and then we're winning them fairly reliably. That's amazing. How did you then get from that to Lumini? Or I think at the time you had initially called the product Digital Brain. Did that come out of a hackathon or what what was the original concept for the product? The first initial version started at this hackathon organized by this large German public company called Optimal Systems. Maybe they've changed. They called it the UVIS hackathon, which was this specific cloud API that they'd released. And they had a bunch of different tools around OCR and some other APIs related to some of the stuff that we're building on today, we'd initially started to talk to the main organizer at this hackathon, and they were talking about their want and focus to build much better customer experiences, not just for their users, but helping you know their customers give it to their end users. That was kind of the first understanding, even remotely, what this problem space of sort of customer service and customer experience was. And that was a hackathon where the initial version back then called Digital Brain kind of started. After that first hackathon, what did the product look like? What did the first version look like? Yeah, so fundamentally, what we realized was that customer service teams were the first ever interaction that an end user would have once someone bought a product or even before buying a product. And they were kind of the brand or the face of an organization. But what was really interesting was I reflected on my own experiences with sort of customer service and me and my co-founder, we reflected on our own experiences with customer service. And what we discovered was that in the end of the day, all we care about was how quickly can we get an answer or get some issue resolved. And so what ended up happening was when we dug deeper, we also lived in this hacker house. And one of these companies that had raised a massive growth round grew from one support agent to sort of 50 support agents over two quarters. And when that sort of hackathon had just happened 
And when this friend of ours had built this company that had to basically 50x their headcount, we were like, okay, there's something, there's some weird like correlation between the linear scaling of teams to growth. And so when we went and spoke to this founder, he was like, hey, you should just come sit in our support org and see what's going on. And so when we went and just sat in this company's support org, what we discovered was that support agents, they had four monitors. It looked like they were traders, like quantitative traders or something. And they were jumping between these different systems to one, gather information, but two, perform the actions associated with these tickets that were coming in. And what was interesting was on 20% of or 30% of tickets, they spent 80% of their time. And that 80% of their time was actually actions and workflows that they did basically the same way every single time. And it was like six to eight workflows that were somewhat bespoke to each and every company. If we helped accelerate that or turbocharge that part, then one, we're impacting that end user experience, but two, we're helping the agents on many different other levels beyond just making them better at their own job, but reducing them from burnout and making them much less prone to even like mistakes that they're doing on a day-to-day basis. There were so many hackathons that you participated in, and this Digital Brain was one idea from one hackathon. How did you know that that was the idea that you wanted to build a company around? It sounds like you connected that with the customer service observation you were doing. How did that become the idea for you? That's a great question. So what ended up happening was, this was probably the first time where it started to feel like what we were building could actually apply in the real world. And what I mean by that is the organizer of the hackathon that we built the product for came back to us after one week. So they'd already given us the prize money. They said, congrats, you win this hackathon. And then one week later, they'd come back and the organizer emailed me and was like, hey, our sort of customer experience organization wants to talk to you. And I was like, this is odd. Maybe they're just doing it because they want to interview us for something, or maybe it's just an extension of this hackathon. We'll take a call. So we take this phone call And this org is like, hey, we actually want to deploy this internally. Uh, Is there any way you could license this technology to us? And that was that moment from between vague hearing of the hacker house friend who was like, oh my God, I hate my support org to building this for, for optimal systems. And then to the company being like, hey, we're actually interested in using this internally. That thread is what sort of put us on this like idea maze of, okay, maybe there's something here and we should go in and dig deeper. Wow. Okay. And so this was like end of 2019 kind of timeframe, early 2020? That's right. Yeah. It's like September, October, November, 2019. Okay. And so then what was the first thing you did getting started in 2020 in those first few months? The moment we heard that, we were like, okay, great. Let's just figure out what we need to actually do to license this. And then it involved a a small set of logistical tasks that as immigrants, we had a little more things to do on at least the incorporation side, getting a bank account set up and figuring out what a contract looks like, making sure that we're not like dropping the ball anywhere. So you actually signed like a paying contract with them. They were, they were effectively your first customer. That's right. And that was kind of the, the, the first version where we started to iterate with them towards the first version of what Lumini ended up looking like. And then I believe that you applied to join Y Combinator in summer of 2020. What led to that decision? As sort of young founders with no Silicon Valley network, the things that you know initially even brought us to startups or helped us understand what company building was, was YC's posts and PG's essays. And it was a dream in many ways to get the chance to participate. And so 
we'd applied and we'd actually applied a second time. So we'd applied when we were doing those hackathons and we actually had just done the hackathon with with optimal systems, but we'd applied again with a much more crisp, clear, and one sort of customer who was willing to engage with us, they were willing to take that bet and get started. So what was in the application? What were you pitching at that time? How were you describing it? Yeah, we called it superhuman for customer support. Superhuman, which is still the email client I still use. First round company, we basically realized we were going into this age of design first software in many ways, because like when we talked to sort of customer support agents, they were mostly people who are our age, meaning folks who are under 30 in most cases, if not younger, and they were starting their career. But for people who grew up in the advent of Instagram and, and Facebook and tools that were consumer-like software, customer service was the opposite of that. It was dominated by tools that were predominantly born much, much earlier than where the support agent sort of demographics were. And so we ended up building the first version, which looked similar basically to how Superhuman was, but for the customer service team. So it was just a layer on top of at that time, Zendesk, where it transformed the workspace into something that was a lot more quicker, much more usable, and had a bunch of other features that we thought made their job a lot easier. Okay. So during YC, you're kind of iterating on this product, building this product, getting some very early customers. What were some of the things that you learned in YC that were most helpful to you? It's really a cliche, but when people talk about the only things that matter are actually talking to customers and building products, the amount of justice that it does by hearing it every single day over and over again, it deeply implants that philosophy. I remember like even a 24-hour period or a 36-hour period where you went into sort of build mode, I started to feel the sense of, hey, am I putting myself in the shoe of this end user who is actually going to see and use what it is that we're building for them? And I am not that person. I am not that person who is going to use this product. So are you thinking of yourself as someone who's just graduated college, taking on their first job and has no idea about the company they're just starting to work for? Are you imagining yourself as that person while building this? So it's like, small little bits that sort of added up into us like being able to get that first initial prototype or MVP out. And that was something that I think was drilled in a lot more deeply by YC than than anyone else. Are there any specific things that you did or like tactics that you could share about how to put yourself in the shoes of the customer so deeply? Yeah, I think a lot of this is going to come down to becoming friends with your users. And I think it's becoming a lot more common where YC's advice was always like, give your phone number like right off the bat when you onboard someone or when you're even talking to them, because when they're thinking about something that's even remotely related to you, you want to make the friction between them and you as small as possible. And so in our case, it was like, how do we get them to feel like we were their peer and that if we were sitting right next to them, they'd talk to us the same exact way compared to if we got on a Zoom call or whatever. And so that was the first start of just almost understanding as a whole human being, like why did they pick the job? What was their sort of motivation? What are their kind of like long-term aspirations for what they want to do? And in a lot of cases, it might really surprise you. A lot of these folks, like not everybody is like looking for like, I want to become the CEO of this company. I'm starting to work out as a support agent. Some of them wanted to be a yoga teacher and support was a way to live life while they pursue other passions. And so it's it's almost knowing where their intrinsic motivations are to help design and build what we ended up building for them. 
Were they like texting you and calling you when you gave them your phone number? And how many folks were you working with like that? I wasn't as often as I would have liked, I think. But I think we at least got one or two interactions per week from the sort of first four to five customers that we'd initially signed when we were doing YC. Okay, so the first version was this superhuman for customer support. What was the reaction to that product when you put it in customers' hands? The easiest features were just sort of, you know, things like keyboard shortcuts and getting as much data in about the end customer they were talking to right in front of them and giving them a very like easy and accessible interface to interact with that felt a lot more natural than an old school Zendesk interface or a ticketing system. And so when we put that in front of them, I think in a lot of cases, we saw incredible sort of delight or want to use it. That was at least our understanding of when we put it in front of them, when we saw their faces light up, it made us feel like, oh my God, like this is it. What was the thing that made their faces light up? That it was just so much faster, easier, better designed? What was the thing that really was the like, aha? This is kind of what led us to do this like zoom in pivot. Maybe I'm like jumping the gun here, but basically when we gave the product, their eyes lit up and all of these things happened. But it wasn't until I remember this very specific user, we were working with this bike and scooter ride sharing company that was local based in LA and one of the sort of support managers. I remember her very specifically looking at one thing that was part of the product that made her go like, oh my God, take my money. And it was specifically this aspect around automating away some of their repetitive workflows. And in this case, it was a very simple workflow that we'd integrated where they could click refund on a subscription. If someone requested a refund on a subscription, then you could do that refund through back then Digital Brain in in just one click. And when I heard that reaction from this one customer, we recorded all of our calls until that point. We ended up going back to actually every single call and notice when there when they had that moment of aha. And what was interesting was they weren't impressed by the keyboard shortcuts. They weren't impressed by the sort of how fast the interface was. They weren't impressed by how pretty the product looked. What they were actually impressed by was the things that made them feel incredibly tired and bored and very manual and very cognitively heavy. When we showed one use case of that being taken away from their day-to-day, that's when their eyes would light up and you'd see their eyes become bigger and you'd hear their like voice become different. That's when it started to feel like, okay, like we've seen this now with six or seven customers. What if we like stripped everything else out and just focused on this like one specific use case and do real research to figure out if this was actually a problem or a need? Well, and just to be clear, it's because the act of issuing a refund prior to Digital Brain involved, I assume, going to different systems and clicking different buttons in different applications and wherever the orders are, wherever the payments happen. Is that why it was such a better experience? Here's just an example. So we work work with a customer called Aura Ring. It's like a sleep ring company. They have hundreds of sort of support folks. And to process a refund traditionally... And this is not just for ordering, this is actually a majority of retail customers, if you look at them, they're, what they're doing basically is once a customer writes in, they're copying their email, they're going to an order management system that's homegrown. Generally, you know, homegrown admin systems are like super slow to load and get started. They're going in, they're searching for this user, they're finding that specific order, they're clicking cancel on that. 
then they're figuring out how much to refund, figuring out the amount that needs to be refunded. They can't give refunds on shipping and they have figured out what the sales tax was based on which specific state this person was from or which country they're from. So they're doing all the math and then going to a payment processor. And then if it's like a much more clunky payment processor, then they're like navigating that own system and then doing the same set of actions basically to do the refund. Then they're going to a shipping provider. If you go have to work with Canada Mail or UPS or something to even navigate that interface is a job of its own. And then you're creating this shipping label, you're downloading the shipping label, you're going back to the end user on Zendesk and then attaching it and saying, hey, your refund has been processed. Can you make sure to attach the shipping label and send the product back to us? So when you're dealing with these like five different systems and like 40, 50 different clicks to process one refund, that's incredibly tiring and a huge weight on the sort of support agent where they've signed up to talk to customers, but 50 or 60% of their time is spent on doing things like that are like this, basically. So Digital Brain was able to get that all down to one click. How did that work? Yeah, so this is the magic of what we offer even today. So even about two and a half, three years in, this is what our focus area is. And we were figuring out like, what are the ways we can solve this problem of unifying these multitude of systems? So we discovered many different approaches to these problems. And the one that was the most exciting or the one that blew my mind is this whole world of robotic process automation. RPA. That's right. And RPA has been around for a long time. UiPath and Automation Anywhere, these are all like public companies valued in the billions of dollars, in some cases, tens of billions of dollars, very large businesses. But they've not necessarily doubled down or focused on sort of customer service or contact center. And the concept of sort of RPA is you're able to record what it is that you do. And the software is able to keep track of sort of the clicks and keystrokes and then generate front-end JavaScript automation of the software doing the exact same things that you do. And so when we discovered that, I was like, oh my God, this is so crazy. It's been around for so long, but like it's manifests its way in sort of automation and like testing and like software testing. And it's been around for some of these old school enterprises, but this could be a very clever way to solve this problem because it's the same exact type of actions. Right. Nobody had applied it to customer service. That was the insight. That's right. Interesting. There was back office, there was claims processing and insurance, all these things that they'd applied it to, but not necessarily to new age kind of customer service software. And so that's when we said, okay, let's just try to build this into the first version of Digital Brain. And that was a stopgap way to get things started. So you had labeled this as a zoom in pivot where you said, okay, this is the most interesting part of the product. Let's strip everything else away and focus on this. What did that actually mean? Did you end up like fully rewriting the UI and did you add a bunch of functionality around the RPA? Maybe even the way to put it is we went from zero to one in the sense of we stripped everything out. We not used any prior code. We'd rewritten the whole thing from the ground up. Oh, wow, from scratch. Yeah, from scratch, basically. Because it was easier to do that than try to play with what we'd already written because it was all like junky, very easy MVP code, right? And so we ended up building the sort of Chrome extension that layered on top of your existing systems. So now we didn't have any problem of we had to integrate into Zendesk or Salesforce or Intercom, or we didn't have to think about what system they were on, right? Now it's just a layer on top of their existing system. So it opened up the market a lot more, right? And now all they had to do was install this piece of software and a bunch of their automations would just pop up. And now they click the button and they would open up this headless browser and like essentially run those same exact workflows while they continue to do their job. 
So I'm trying to figure out what is the advice to other founders here? Like, how do you make the decision to say, we think there's something really here. We're going to throw away all the code that we've written. We're going to rewrite it based on a new idea. What are the signals that like where you knew that was the right thing to do? So I haven't actually gotten into some of this, what I feel like in B2B software, it's like probably one of the most important things to do early on is actually sell before you write code. When we initially sold the first version of Digital Brain, we sold it just as a superhuman competitor. And so we we just were like, okay, what's a good price point? Let's like try $30 a seat and sell it, right? And what was really interesting is what we said was, okay, let's like strip everything else. Let's just throw this little automation palette in front of these same exact customers and see their willingness to pay. And it's not, we'd ask them, tell us how much you'd pay. We go in fully prepped like we were a big business and have this whole pricing deck and whole pricing proposal. And we started the at that point at 139 a seat per agent for a layer that was on top of something they were paying the same amount for. That was a system of record. And what was mind-blowing or what was the point where it felt like, oh my God, this is it, was actually when four to five customers said yes to that size of contract. They were willing to pay per seat for a layer on top of Zendesk that was just an automation palette. At that point, one made us realize, okay, like people have a lot more budget than we thought. But two, it made us realize, okay, like this willingness to pay at certain price points where the math works for us, but also the sort of need is clear because they're willing to invest so much is a sign that we should go out and build this versus let's just talk to users and build product. Uh, which maybe is a little bit of an unlearning. Oh, okay. So you actually went and sold these five contracts at $139 a month per seat per month. And then that's what gave you the conviction to go and rewrite the whole thing from scratch? That's right. So we knew that the first version of this, we could probably whip together in four to six weeks. And so we were confident in being able to at least get something they can use basically at that point. And so what we decided to do was say, okay, if we're able to do that, when we're working with these customers who are willing to pay this much, they'd be more than happy to wait when we put down a proper implementation and customer success cycle that involved that type of timeline. And so that was the point at which we said, okay, let's get a few of these up and running. And if they sign, then let's go out and rewrite this whole thing. Um, and when we did it the second time around, it was a, a much, much more effective one sell, but two product we ended up building because we knew exactly what we wanted to do for them. How did you pick the 139 number, by the way? I mean, that's like that's like five times more expensive than how you were originally trying to price it. Did it just come out of thin air? It was very similar to what they were paying for Zendesk or, or Salesforce. If you look at Salesforce pricing, it's between 99 and 189. And if you just wanted the ticketing system, it was like 139. And so we said, if they're willing to pay the exact same amount as their system of record, then we have something there. So who were your first customers? Did you start right off the bat with Aura Ring and whatnot? Or was there a sort of smaller customer that you were going after initially, your ICP? I think the first set of customers actually we iterated with, we learned that larger the sort of support org, the more ROI they'd see. If we increase the efficiency of an agent by 5%, it is hyper valuable if you have a five, 500 person support team versus a five-person support team. And so we had to step a little bit back out of Silicon Valley in some sense, meaning I think we grew up in this world of PLG, Figma, and Stripes of the world. And we had to step back a little bit and say, okay, where are these incredibly large organizations that have customer service? So yes, we talked about Oura Ring and Strava and whatnot and some of these customers, 
But these are the reasons we're mentioning these customers. So these are customers that people who listen to something like in-depth or some of these people like actually know. But a majority of the customers we're selling to today are customers you've probably never heard of or never actually interacted with, but they're like counting small accounting firms in Arkansas or something. But they have like 150, 300 people in the back office doing these types of work over and over again. And they have very little resources in engineering to be able to like get access to something like this. And the first set of customers we went after, keeping that in mind, we were only going after customers that actually had a sizable support team. When we started to start working with whatnot, we said, okay, let's like at least aim for sort of 25 folks on a team, because if we increase their efficiency by 10% or something like that would be a sizable amount of money we're saving for them in relation to the amount they're paying per seat per agent. Whatnot grew very quickly. It went from 25 agents to over 200 in, in nine months. And so that was a very different kind of story. But I think in majority of customers we focused on, we tried to have a fairly large sort of customer service organization. It's interesting because I think it in some ways is a lot harder. I think founders would tell you, oh, you're a B2B startup coming out of YC, sell to other YC companies or sell to series A startups or series B startups. You were aiming bigger than that because the product was meant to be used in bigger organizations than that. Did that make it substantially harder in those early days? So I will tell you, like, it's not like we didn't try the sell to YC startups or sell to young companies. When we started to sell is when we actually got that feedback that, okay, like we're not actually seeing the ROI that adds up here. And it became a lot more intuitive because we were thinking, okay, if someone sold us customer service software, would we like be willing to pay this much? It didn't add up because we were trying to sell to people like us, at least initially during YC or just after YC, that was the case. But then there was sort of this like 12 month period of like just navigation of trying to find out who actually is this type of end user. And that's when I went into this like, whole rabbit hole of let's look at the most successful like enterprise businesses ever built. And if we look at all of these old school enterprise businesses, these are very tops down, very large, but very clear in terms of when they have the need, the willingness to pay is just super, super straightforward. What is that in relation to the kinds of customers working with today or the people who face the problems that we're solving for today. And so that's what eventually led us to think a little bit like the service nows of the world, the work days of the world, where we're selling some of these like much more enterprise, larger sort of businesses. And today we have an SMB or mid-market business. We really double down and focus actually mostly on the old school enterprise set of customers. Walk us through how you sell to that type of customer. Who do you target? What is the message do you think about sort of the buyer or decision maker of the sale being different than the end user? I assume you do. Walk us through how you sell Lumina. The biggest difference actually is everything that I learned initially through traditional sort of Silicon Valley successful startups does not necessarily apply in this type of selling. You have to, and maybe have to is a strong word, but in most cases, it is very effective if you're able to figure out who are friends of the CEO. And what I mean by that is figure out how can I get a warm introduction to this specific customer, right? And it's not, let me figure out who's the exact end decision maker and find an intro to that. It is literally, let's figure out who has the most power within this organization and let's figure out who they talk to and let's become friends with that person so they can, they're willing to just put in a good word or make that introduction to that person who can then forward something else to the person who ends up using a product. So you usually go a level or two higher in the org chart than who the actual decision maker is, it sounds like. 
In most enterprise cases, we start actually with the CEO. We try to get in front of the CEO. We don't try to get a phone call with them, but we try to figure out who is it that they actually respect. So it's not a question of, do you know this person? It's actually a question of how do you know this person? If we're talking to some of our investors and they're like, oh, I know the CEO, it's not just like, great, I'll send you a blurb. It's actually like, how do you know this person? And then once we get that, then they forward this blurb with a little like recommendation almost to be like, hey, you should take this seriously. And then the CEO generally forwards that in our case, to the VP of customer service, to the VP of operations, who then when they hear from the CEO, they're like, I don't even know if this is useful for me, but I will still take the call because it's coming from tops down. And then it becomes a game of, okay, how do we orchestrate the right strings to make this all work? That makes sense. So then you get your first call, your first meeting with the VP of ops or VP of customer success. How are you pitching the product? The first call itself is like basically getting them to a point where they're screaming about the problem that they care about the most. And so this is, again, maybe counterintuitive to what a lot of people are generally used to, where we try to actually do 45 minutes of discovery. So first 30 to 40 minutes, we actually just spend like trying to understand who they are as people. What is it that they care about? What is on their roadmap? What are the current projects they're working on? What is their biggest sort of way in which they get eventually promoted? Or what is their sort of aspirations within the company? And once we understand that, then we're going into, okay, how does what Lumini solve for today actually integrate into their long-term plans at the company. And so in today's world, it's probably something like, especially the customers working with, how am I going to be the person who's bringing this next-gen AI technology into your org? If I bring this, will I be the person who brought AI into this like old school org? Amazing. If that's the pitch, then we know how to sell into that type of person. Maybe six months ago, it was like, margins are all what matters in our business because we are trying to become profitable. We're trying to become a business that long-term is running extremely lean and super efficient. And at that point, we're talking about efficiency and we're talking about this is the person who is helping set the standard for running a lean org or for running a very efficient business. And Lumini is that first step for them to get there. So it's basically taking what you're building and fitting it into their narrative of the story, even if the product doesn't change in any form. There's like three or four different types of ways in which you can sell that story. It's basically learning what that problem for them is and then putting them to one of those buckets. It sounds like you spend the first half, at least, of these conversations just really learning about the customer themselves and what their personal goals are and what they want to get done at the company. And then based on what you hear, you've got like three or four different ways of positioning Lumini to be the answer to their questions. Do you ever get a customer who's just like in the first 30 minutes, like, why are you asking me all these questions? I just I thought you were trying to sell me something. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it is probably the most uncomfortable part about our sales process and for new sales hires, for example, to be okay with that. I was just on a sales call and literally minute 30, we haven't told them what we do. And you can almost see their faces go like, what am I doing here? Like, why am I on this phone call? But what's really interesting is at minute 30, when you then switch into pitch mode, everything that they said illuminized the answer to that problem. And when you put that, the effect of the product. And we don't always do demos on first calls, but in this case we did, but like the effect of that demo in this call that we just had is just hundred times versus if you just be like, Hey, we help automate your repetitive workflows. Here's a cool demo. They're like, great. Sounds good. Maybe this is a fit. Maybe this is not versus you make the answer to all of their problems, like your product at that point, it doesn't always work, but when it does, it accelerates the sales cycle, especially in some of these old school enterprise stories, like so much faster than if you just went to a traditional sort of sales process. 
So when does it not work? Is this something that you think a lot of B2B founders could be doing more of? When is this tactic very successful versus when does it not work? It doesn't work when the ICP or the pitch you're making is with the customer that actually doesn't need your product. There was a phase where we expected certain companies to actually be perfect fits for the product when in reality, they were not. We just assumed, oh, if you have a very large end user base, then you need Lumini because you probably have a lot of queries. That's probably not the case in a lot of these cases. And that just might be immaturity in our part when we started. But a big part of the first like 20 to 30 minutes is basically discovering actually whether they fit into this problem and doing the pre-work ahead of time through various other sources, whether this is actually the right fit when you reach out to a company. For example, simple things like job boards reveal a lot of like whether this is a company that is like looking for solutions, meaning if they're hiring eight support managers, clearly they're like scaling headcount. If they're trying to scale headcount, not everybody wants to just keep hiring for the sake of hiring, maybe in 2021, but people are not hiring for the sake of hiring. Like at this point, they're hiring because there's a clear need to manage a lot of these people or just get more and more bodies on the problem. What if we just become a part of that solution? So it's doing a lot of that pre-work ahead of time. The job board is just one example. There's various types of these sources for every company that depending on the company, but those are just some of the things that we do on the go-to-market side to ensure. It sounds like it's because you figured out early on, Lumini is perfect for people that are growing their customer support orgs, where it's like they're growing it so fast, stuff is breaking. Lumini is the answer to that. And then you're sort of like reverse engineering, or what are the signals that we could look for externally where we know that they're in that situation? That's one use. Or the other side is the org's already like very bloated or super big. And that's just like a an easy way to discover, okay, like they're all trying to cut costs and become more efficient while not necessarily linearly growing. And so Lumini is almost like, hey, we'll be like 20% of your workforce and you should buy Lumini. I love talking about the sales stuff because I think especially in the early days, founder-led sales are so intertwined with finding product market fit. It's really interesting to hear how you think about these things. What are the moments in time when a founder really realizes they're getting product market fit feedback or like something is working. One of the very early moments for you was we can sell five customers at $139 per seat per month. Like that was a a validation moment for product market fit. What are some of the others that came after that that really stand out in your mind as, as validation moments? Maybe this won't sound super nice coming out, but it's like, basically, can you get some random person on the street, give them your pitch And can they close a deal? At least in our world, it is repeatability of what it is that you're building, attacking a very specific type of problem, not a hyper complex, but fairly straightforward way to go through a sales cycle without having any sort of involvement. And I also won't say that we're 100% there. We're tracking towards that. And I'm very closely monitoring what repeatability means for Lumini's go-to-market org. But that's like one of the most important things for us to get to a point where I feel like we have 100% product market fit. And what I mean by that is literally, can we say, here are the like five things you have to sell a customer on and will they sign? And are they all going through the same set of steps using the same types of scripts? And are they predictably closing within a window that's plus or minus two weeks? If we're able to do that, then we found a very clear audience and a very clear sort of point at which we could hire a bunch of people and it would just grow in terms of our revenue. And I think that, 
has more recently happened in some of our like specific segments that we're selling into retail, for example, is one of those segments that we've found very clear, easy use cases, repeatable sets of problems. Healthcare is another one where we sell into all of these like digital health clinics. We sell into some of these like insurance claims processing stuff that all kind of still falls under customer service. Those are some examples of where we found like some of this repeatability happen. And I would say that's at least what I've noticed across like a lot of founders I spend time with, something that's not like intuitive. Do you have any lessons there about going after so many verticals at once? Healthcare, e-commerce, is that a good thing to do or a challenging thing to do? I think it's not the most straightforward, to be very honest. It's actually something that what you're chasing after is basically quality of revenue, right? By quality of revenue, what I mean is the sort of relatively, in our case, cost of doing business. For us, for this contract to have, let's say we take one customer and they're having X amount of ROI, are they willing to pay a significant portion of that ROI back to Lumini along with engagement of the product? So it's not like they pay us hundreds of thousands of dollars and they don't use it. Are they paying hundreds of thousands of dollars and then still constantly using it, still engaging with us, giving us feedback, asking for things? That sort of cycle basically is what in the end of the day, I would think of as quality of like high quality revenue. If we're able to think about that from day one and and build that into even the culture of the company, that is one of the things that we're hyper-focused on, at least on that side. It's interesting to hear you label it as quality of revenue. And so what you mean by that is number one, the customer is willing to pay a, a large percentage of their margin to you. And number two, they're engaging with you very deeply. What does that end up yielding? Like, why is that high quality revenue so much better than than any revenue? You know, at least in SaaS businesses, there's so much predictability once you've layered this in. Because if you have high quality of revenue, which is you have a strong foundational base that's somewhat positive in terms of how much they're willing to pay, plus they're engaging with you, the likelihood of you having like a good net dollar retention long term is probably very high. When they're engaging with you, you have more and more opportunities to show how much Lumini can do for them beyond just what they're using you for today, right? So you become almost this like little thought partner. When we spend time with our customer success folks, they're not just being like handholding, like making them happy in the context of day-to-day use. They're the slowest salespeople, meaning every conversation they're having is actually a sales conversation for them to expand, for them to grow, for them to continue to think about sort of uh, NDR with us, right? And it's not just like us sneakily asking them to pay more. It is like them coming back and being like, hey, like, for example, we have this customer who started in customer service, then expanded into their finance ops, and then expanded to sort of sales ops as the next vertical. So the VP of ops is their title, but they are, they're certain, they basically were like, we're putting in this dollar, we're getting so much more back, we should be investing on in this early on. And it did come from our head of CS who spent time building that relationship and selling through that process. We've talked a lot about how you grew customers, sold to them, grew revenue, I wanted to ask about the team side of that, the folks that work at Lumini, and the fundraising side of that. How did you sort of grow your team and think about fundraising as the product was growing? On the team side, we've kept it very small intentionally. And I think this is a lot of companies, especially today, and we've kept it small in the context of revenue range, scale of business. We want to always think about, is the person who is at Lumini the most healthily stretched as possible? And what I mean by that is it's not just for us conserving capital or it's not just for us like being efficient. 
It's because employees and folks who work at a company will say only if they feel incredibly challenged and excited about the things that they're doing on a day-to-day basis. We, we just actually hired our first ever marketer, right? Probably later than the average company. When we hired her, right? What's interesting about, at least in her case, we said, let's just, you do the zero to one fully. Yes, you have the resources to go out and find other folks to help you wherever you need, but do you feel constantly challenged and do you feel like you're healthily stretched? on a daily basis that you're not leading to burnout, but you're pushing to the maximum extent. For that reason, we've kept the team quite small. I might get these specific numbers wrong, but I think we have just around 17 or 18 people, but we have seven YC founders, YC or former YC founders at Lumini. Very, very entrepreneurial culture. Did you do that intentionally? I would like to say intentionally, but I think at least the first couple weren't as intentional. The next few were because like we started to realize the impact you have as someone who has run a company previously, and whether it's six or seven YC founders, and then three or four people who've raised at least three or four million dollars. More than half the team today is like some form of founder in the past, and they all run their own functional units within the company. This is what we call the first team or whatever, which is coming together at this point. I don't think I've heard of a company like this before where you have, sounds like more than half the company is previous founders. I mean, are you ever like, there's too many founders in the kitchen right now? I think what's interesting is most of the people who joined Lumini, yes, there are some of them who want to still go back and start another company much later, maybe post Lumini life. But most of them have that deep entrepreneurial understanding. I'm hoping Lumini is a rocket ship, but want to join a rocket ship to so experience that sort of massive upswing. And so in a lot of cases, traditionally, we would call them unqualified. On paper, there are probably many candidates who might look a lot better. But when you actually spend time with some of these folks, you realize that hunger and that want to grow and that that want to excel within whatever they're pursuing within Lumini is maybe a 10x if someone, if we just hired someone fit the bill. We could have hired some VP of sales who sold UiPath or something. Maybe we will, maybe we will long-term. But today we have a former YC founder who did YC back in 14, who was running the entire sales org and was still like, pushing ahead. But right now, I would say is doing incredibly well. But I think it's a lot harder to do that when your incentives are maybe different. How have you approached fundraising over the years and the milestones that you needed to reach to raise each round? The one unconventional bet we made on our fundraising journey, and maybe it will not work at the Series B or Series C stage, is actually a focus on just the depth of personal story and on the focus on the first 20 years of my life compared to the actual sort of what have we done in the last, whatever, the prior six months or three months. Because in my view, what it felt like when I started to spend a lot of time with early stage investors, at least the ones I wanted to work with, what was interesting was the ones I wanted to work with mostly wanted to bet on people. So in my head, it didn't make sense for me to just start off being like, hey, Lumini helps do customer service, agent automation. Here are our customers. Here's our revenue. Here's our NDR. I think you should invest. It was a lot more like, here's the first 20 years of my life. Here are all the points that I think are inflection points. Here are all the different parts that led to these inflection points. And here's why I think this starting of this company is another inflection point and why I think I will become world-class at this. I think has always been my mentality towards like fundraising and that's helped raise all this money so far, at least. So when you connect the dots on that, Keshav, are there things where you think back to the way I approach running the business now is heavily informed by the way that I grew up or things that I learned in those first 20 years? 
I think that a company is always a reflection of some of that early cultural elements that you set as founders. And a lot of those early cultural elements, I think, come from your upbringing. And for me, you know, it was an upbringing of grit, right, of perseverance. It was always a sense of you can push through any pain, you can push through basically any wall and find your way to whatever you thought was at that point success. And so a lot of when we started was just like, let's just think about what is it that we want to do at least in the next six months or 12 months. And what is the shortest way to get there, but do it in a very sort of calculated way, but without missing on the sort of need for hunger and want. And I think that's how we've hired also for every single person. And maybe that's the reflection of all these founders we've hired so far. Okay. So sitting here now in 2023, what is exciting to you at Lumini now? What are some of the things that you're focused on now and some of the things that you're looking forward to? What's really interesting or very exciting about some of this like AI wave and all of these things that's happening is actually like, I'm like very convinced that for you to win in sort of B2B software or for you to win in sort of the world, you have to be insanely commercial. And what I mean by being insanely commercial is everything needs to still go back to the f- the foundations of a business, which is, are you making money? And is revenue, quality revenue coming in? And this is why I constantly reference ServiceNow, Workday, and Snowflake, and maybe what Silicon Valley doesn't. Snowflake's obviously talked about a lot, but uh, Workday or some of these older school businesses, Adobe, it's really interesting because I don't know anyone who uses Adobe, but like, why is it a $200 billion company? <laughs> uh, it's really fascinating, but that's what I'm excited about, being on that path in becoming a deep enterprise org where we're helping the transformation of some of these like much more older school businesses to think like Silicon Valley, but also at the same time, willing to work with younger, earlier stage companies like ours. It's like the time at which they're willing to take that bet because of all of this change that's happening so quickly. But at the same time, I think the ones who will end up winning are actually not the ones who end up selling to Figma and Stripe, are the ones who actually end up selling. By selling, I mean like the product selling to the service nows of the world and the old school insurance mutual benefits company of or mutual insurance company of Massachusetts or something. I think those are the companies that will end up becoming a lot larger than your day-to-day tools that you see. So getting to the end here, Keshav, I want to ask you a couple of questions that are sort of more around personal advice. What are some of the most common mistakes other founders make when they are first starting out? Generally, everyone's running towards some sort of milestone as quickly as possible. But if I reflect back on if there was something I would do differently, is I would actually spend a lot more time with some of those early customers and thinking a lot more about who those first five to 10 design partners or five to 10 customers were. And the reason I say that is because I feel like we could have still landed on the same type of ICP that we're selling to today, but we could have probably saved like six to 12 months of our journey if we spent some of that time upfront. And I think it's coming from a lot of common wisdom around just like trying to get X percent growth over a period to fundraise to get a seed round done. But I think what we, at least my perspective on at least the incredible investors is actually if you have a true depth of like the understanding of the customer you're selling and being incredibly opinionated about why you're selling to them and why they will lead you to a $100 million or a billion dollar revenue business, I think it's probably one of the most important things that if I feel like I did the mistake of, and I feel like a lot of founders, especially young founders, end up doing without thinking much. Love that advice and agree and, and love it when founders can articulate so deeply in the voice of the customer. Okay, last one. Who are the most memorable people 
or mentors that you've had in your career? And what did they teach you? One investor I work with who led Lumni Seed Round is this woman named Katie Stanton. She runs a fund called Moxie Ventures along with Alex Rutter, who's her co-founder. And what's incredible about working with someone like Katie is when she first took the bet on Lumini, Lumini was the first ever round she'd ever led from her from her fund one. And what was really interesting was the context in which she decided to make the investment. It was in a very short time frame because we met very late in the process. But also, once she made the sort of commitment, she almost became a part of my life, not just in the context of let's build Lumini together, but like, how do we get Keshav to become a world-class CEO. And what I mean by that is not just, hey, let's just find intros to every customer you can sell to. Let me connect you to all the like product people I know, et cetera, et cetera. It was things like she offered to talk to my younger sister who was thinking of what she wanted to do in her life. And I was telling my sister about Katie. Katie had no idea about this, but she was like, oh, tell me about your family and all these things. And at this point, she's met my whole family. She offered to pay for my sister's college tuition. It's like going above and beyond, I think, what someone could do. She did. And it's been so special for me in that way on the business front. On the other side, there were these two people, Brett Chilke and Ahmed Joseph. When I first came to the US, one of my roommates from UWC went to Stanford. And so I lived with him for the first four weeks in one of these dorms at Stanford. And when I first came out here, these two people, I'd met them through this program that first brought me here. When I was telling them, oh, like, I'm trying to figure out like where I want to live and all that. And they were like, while you're trying to figure it out, you can just kind of live with us. And so I ended up staying with them those next six weeks. And when I was going through even those times of hackathon prize money and living almost like week to week in some ways, I always was like, oh, I guess maybe this is the last week I'm here because next week I might have to go back because I actually don't have any capital left and things like that. And when I'd even expressed anything remotely like that, the first thing they'd say is you can live with us. Like we'll take care of you. We'll support you. Those are things that are just like luck and the openness and willingness and generosity of people here, not just in the US, but like in Silicon Valley. And they've played a key role in where I am today. And I'm sure they will play a much bigger role in as my journey continues to progress. Love that, Keshav. You're surrounded by some really good people. I'm a big fan of Katie's as well, so I'm glad you mentioned that. And, uh, you know, your story is incredible. So thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing it. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.